Yeah, isn't that a great story of how God has and is working in Hannah's life? Well, good morning, everyone. Um, It was a very nice restaurant in Dallas, Texas. And she said, yes. Um, I think I waited to propose to her until after dinner. And my reasoning was... If I proposed before dinner and she said no, that was going to make a really awkward dinner. But she said yes, so it all worked out. Um, I remember when my wife graduated from nursing school, and that was a tough process. We had three teenagers at home at the time, and she did great. But when she graduated, uh, we got the family together, and we took her to her favorite restaurant just to celebrate. You know, a lot can happen at a dinner, can it? We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate anniversaries. Um, It's just a chance to share life, to celebrate life, family, friends, even business colleagues. Once in a while, you go to a dinner and it ends up being not so pleasant. You know, like on Thanksgiving when Uncle Ted shows up and all he wants to do is talk about controversial political issues the whole time. Or Aunt Edna wants to talk the entire meal about her ingrown toenail or something like that, you know. Well, today, we're going to talk about perhaps the most well-known dinner ever. In fact, this one has its own term or its own phrase, and when I use it, you know what I'm referring to. It's called the Last Supper. And even if you don't know that much about the Bible, you've probably heard that because obviously um, there's a famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci named The Last Supper, which he painted be, uh, because of the story we're going to look at this morning. Now, what we're going to look at, The Last Supper, has bad news and good news. The bad news is really bad. And the good news is really good. We're in this series that we're calling The Week That Changed the World. And one of those pivotal events during that week was the Last Supper. Um, At the Last Supper, Jesus gives two profound revelations. He reveals a couple things. One is incredibly disturbing. The other is the best news you'll ever hear. Did you take, uh, if, if you went to college, did you take fine arts when you were in college? Um, I did, and I think the reason I took it was because it was required. <laughs> and I do remember this about fine arts. I didn't pay all that much attention in it. Um, probably should have played, paid a lot more. But I was doing some reading in preparation for the sermons, so I started reading up on The Last Supper, that painting, that portrayal. And it, it was pretty fascinating, I mean, to, to read some of what, what happened. For example, um, Leonardo da Vinci, when he painted it, what he's portraying here is the moment that Jesus tells his disciples, not only that one of them is going to betray him, but that Judas is going to be the one to betray him. And then, in addition to that, there are tons of fascinating features. I won't go into all of them this morning. We don't have time. But you notice notice how they're sitting at a table? Uh, More than likely, they were reclining. And notice how they're all facing us? More than likely, they were like in a circular 
setting there, but, you know, think about it. Let's be practical. If he's painting that picture, he didn't want to have to paint the backside of a bunch of guys, right? Um, and then they're actually in groups of three. Jesus is the focal point. He's the center. Interestingly, to his right, our left, are Peter, John, and Judas. That seems like kind of an odd you know, group to put together, those three, until you realize that Judas is one of the focal points of this painting too because he's in, Jesus is announcing his betrayal. And you may not be able to see it. It's kind of grainy and all that. But actually Judas is holding on to a money bag. And more than likely, of course, that's the 30 pieces of silver he received for, from the religious, Jewish religious leaders for finding a secret place where they could... Um, arrest Jesus without the crowds knowing about it. Now, to Jesus' left and to our right, you find um, Thomas and Philip and James. And they say, it's hard for me to see it, but they say the three of them have looks of horror on their faces. They're shocked. And the reason is they're expressing their emotions after they hear that Jesus said, Judas is going to be the one to betray me. So let's do this. Um, let's start with the bad news, the betrayal of Jesus, then we'll quickly move on to the good news. Now this is recorded in three of the four books written about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story. is. So I'm going to look at the one recorded in Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 26, and here's what it says. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? Um, that phrase, Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, it's going to come into play later. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. Let's keep reading. Um, verse 20, when it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve and some, uh, you read that they actually reclined. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. <laughs> talk about a meal taking a turn. You're sitting there eating, enjoying the food, and all of a sudden Jesus says, Hey, guys, one of you is going to betray me. Can you, can you imagine being there and what happened? I can just picture the room going completely silent. Not a word. Maybe the only sound you hear is a couple of the disciples choking on their bread from what they just heard. But Jesus continues, check out what he says, greatly distressed, each one of them asking to am I the one Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from the, this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had not even been born. Judas the one who would betray him also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Talk about a bombshell. Judas is the guy. And of course, we know the rest of the story. We talked about the 30 pieces of silver um, where the Jewish religious leaders bribed him to find that just that right spot and right time for Jesus for Judas to deliver Jesus to them. Have you ever been betrayed? You know, I have. I I don't know if there's a worse feeling. And you know, the closer someone is to you, 
the more it hurts. Perhaps one of the predominant feelings is disbelief. How could they do that? And that's exactly what the disciples were feeling here. I mean, they thought there is no way it would be Judas. Um, you know, we often see Judas as the shady character, right? I mean, he's the guy who, as the meal's about over, he slips out back behind the building and he's smoking pot or something like that, you know. That's how we view Judas. But that is not what was going on at all. They didn't see Judas that way. Um, you know, it's not like they were sitting there when Jesus said, hey, by the way, guys, just so you know, Judas, he's going to betray me. And they're like, oh, yeah, boy, we saw that one coming. No, not at all. In fact, um, we read in one of the accounts that after Jesus told them that it was Judas, they still didn't get it. And one reason is he was the accountant for the group. He was the guy who handled the money. You don't make the shady guy the guy who handles the money, right? Betrayal. You know, it can happen from a spouse, from a friend, sometimes a parent, a child, business colleague, a coach, sometimes even a pastor. What are your emotions when you feel betrayed? Sadness, anger, hurt, disbelief. All of that. Know this. If you have been betrayed, or if you are betrayed at some point in the future, Jesus gets it. He understands he's been betrayed. So take it to him. Tell him about it. Not only can he handle it, but he'll provide you with comfort. Um, just before we move on to the good news... Can I take a moment and just challenge you a little bit? Be all right if I got in your face a little bit here. Um, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and aren't obeying his teachings, it's the same as betrayal. So if your commitment stops at inconvenience, that's like betrayal. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you're looking at inappropriate material on the Internet. You know, you feel God calling you to put him first in your finances. You haven't done it. There's someone you know you need to forgive. You haven't done it. You're not giving God your time. It's betrayal. Sometimes we need to, instead of pointing the finger at Judas, look inward. Well, that's the betrayal. That's the bad news. Let's turn a corner and let's look at the good news. And like I said earlier, um, the good news couldn't be any better than what we're going to look at. Earlier we talked about, we read about the fat Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. I said I'd come back to it because, and now it's when it comes into play. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was kind of like our Christmas season. 
And because when, you know, when we say Christmas, we don't just mean a day. We mean an entire season, right? And that's the way it worked for them. Um, they, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started with a meal, the Passover meal, but it lasted for eight days, and it was packed full of rituals and traditions and symbolism and significance. It actually always goes back to Egypt when the nation of Egypt was being held captive. They were slaves there in the in Egypt. And God raised up Moses and said, hey, I'm going to free my people, the nation of Israel. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say you're no longer going to hold slaves. I want you to let them go. So Moses went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, I'm not going to do it. So God sent a series of plagues, 10 plagues in Egypt so that Pharaoh would know it was time to let him go, that he was God. Well, each one, Pharaoh just got more stubborn. So finally, the 10th plague, God says, enough is enough. And he said, the firstborn male in all of Egypt is going to die. But he told Moses this, I will spare you as a nation, the nation of Israel. I will save you. I will rescue you if you'll do this. I want each household to kill a lamb. And I want to take the blood from that lamb. And I want them to put it on the doorpost, to put it over their house. And when when the death angel comes through... When they see that blood from that lamb that's on the doorpost, I will pass over that household. And when they did that, the, the nation it showed their faith that they were trusting in God to save them, to spare them, to rescue them. And so they would kill a lamb, and he said, cook that lamb, eat the whole thing. They baked bread, and it was called unleavened bread. That just means bread without yeast in it. And the whole point of that was, you know, yeast makes the bread rise. Well, the bread was going to be flat. And the reason they were to make unleavened bread was because it showed that they had to leave in a hurry. And then finally he said, spread that blood over the doorpost. And that was their act of faith. And so for centuries, the nation of Israel would observe the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the Passover. And that night when Jesus is in that room with his disciples, that's what they were doing. They were eating the Passover meal. They were probably eating lamb. They were eating unleavened bread. They were drinking the wine. And that's what that was all about. But all of these rituals, everything that they were doing, year after year, decade after decade, Century after century, the nation of Israel observed this. All of that was just pointing to one thing. It was pointing to the future. That time when the perfect Lamb of God was going to be the Messiah, the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for their sins. And I love that phrase, once-for-all sacrifice. So year after year, they would go to Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, to the temple, and they would offer lamb after lamb. It was all just a sacrifice. And you say, why did they have to do all that? Because those lambs took their place. They were the substitute. You know, our sin requires death. Romans 6.23 says, for the payment for our sin is death. But God said, sacrifice that lamb, and that lamb will be your substitute. It will take your place. 
Do you know that it's estimated that on Passover in Jerusalem, as the people would all come to Jerusalem in the temple, about 250,000 lambs were sacrificed every year. So many that the priest, when they would take the blood from those lambs and pour it on the altar, and then there was a drain. They would drain it outside the temple, and it would run into a brook or a creek. And during Passover, that creek would actually turn red with blood. It was just a vivid reminder to everybody there in Jerusalem, you know, how seriously our holy God takes our sin. But you know, all these lambs, year after year after year, at some point you would think some people, and I'm sure they did, were saying, will this ever stop? A quarter of a million lambs a year for, to take our place as our sacrifice? When I was um, in high school, which was the 1970s, by the way, which means I'm old, I know. Uh, but the kind of the culture among teens at that time was that you were to conform. You were to look alike, you were to dress alike and all that. So, you know, you, had the, you were supposed to wear the same hairstyles, you were supposed to wear the same kind of clothes, um, even the same brands of clothes you were supposed to wear. And with, you wore jeans, but you just weren't supposed to wear any jeans. And if you are old enough to remember the 1970s, you probably know what I'm talking about. Back in the 1970s, there was a brand you were supposed to wear to be cool. And it was Levi jeans. And the way you knew they were Levi's is the right back pocket had a tag on it, and then there was some stitching on that pocket. If you wore it, you were cool. If you didn't wear them, you weren't. So J.C. Penney came out with a jean that they called plain pocket jeans. They were exactly like the Levi's. They were made alike. They were the same quality, all that. There's just a couple subtle differences. Well, one wasn't so subtle, and that is they were a lot cheaper than Levi's. Same jeans, just cheaper. And they didn't have that little tag or stitching on the back right pocket. So you weren't supposed to wear them. You weren't cool if you wore those jeans. Why? They weren't the real thing. And all those lambs that were sacrificed and slaughtered at the temple year after year, they weren't the real thing. And then, one day, he showed up. The real thing. And he was sitting in a room the night before he was about to be crucified. That's why we call it the Last Supper. He was sitting in a room the night before he was about to be crucified. And he said something that changed everything. There was an old covenant, and now he announces there's a new covenant. Let's read about it. Matthew 26, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, This, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant and some of the versions read the new covenant between God and his people, it is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins 
of many. Don't let that word many trip you up. You know, many, many other places in the Bible it says that Jesus died for everybody. It's just a figure of speech. But you know, when he said that Judas was going to betray him, if that was a bombshell of good, of bad news, then when he says this, it's like a tidal wave of good news. He was going to take the place of all those lambs. He would atone for our sins, Jesus would, once for all. You know what? I bet when he said that, there were some pretty happy lambs in Jerusalem, you know? Some of them are going, whew, that was close, you know? <laughs> now that old covenant and new covenant, when we talk about that, the old covenant is the one that God made with Moses. And that was the one that we call the law. It had all these rules, these regulations, all these sacrifices, rituals, and so on that we talked about already. They had to year after year after year. And in the Old Testament, when you made a covenant, the way you ratified that covenant was with blood. Something had to die. And if you were to read that covenant God made with Moses... In the Old Testament, you would see that it was ratified or the deal was sealed with blood. So, for example, we read in Hebrews 9.22, another book in the Bible. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So when Jesus was there with his disciples and he held up that cup and he said, This is the new covenant in my blood. You see what he was saying? I'm going to die for you. A once for all sacrifice. You don't have to keep doing this. He did what all those lambs couldn't do. Jesus did what we can't do for ourselves. He offers us total and complete forgiveness. The significance of that cannot be overstated. Let me tell you what it means for each of us. Our past. All our sins are forgiven. Our present. He says we now have a relationship with Him because He died for us once we've accepted Him into our life. He actually says He adopts us into His family. And that means he'll be our friend. He'll walk with us through this life. He'll give us strength when we need strength. Our future. We have the promise of eternal life in heaven with God forever. That requires a response, doesn't it? In fact, that demands a response. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus... That's communion. That's why we take communion. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, obviously communion is not something you would do just because it doesn't have that meaning to you. But perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus and today you're going, okay, I believe Jesus died for me and I want to rely on one. I want to show my faith just like the nation of Israel did centuries ago. I want to show my faith in what he did for me. I'm relying on his blood. To forgive me of all my sins. And I'm going to surrender my life to Him. You, you can do that even today. If you've never done that before. Now, 
if you aren't a follower of Jesus and you're hearing this, you may be asking the question, why would he do that? It's a fair question. Let me have the Bible explain to you why he did that, that for us. This is Romans chapter 5. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I recently read a true story about an 85-year-old lady in Florida in a gated community. There were ponds all over the gated community. She was out walking her little dog, went by one of those ponds, and an 11-foot alligator jumped out and grabbed her little dog. You know what she did? She went after the alligator. The alligator let go of her dog Unfortunately, he turned on her, he grabbed her, and she died from it. Now, if you don't have a dog, you're probably thinking that woman was crazy to do that. If you have a dog and you're a dog lover, you're thinking, I'd probably do that for my dog, right? So you kind of get that. And, you know, we get the idea that someone might, you, you, you would die for your loved one, no doubt. You might die for a good person. But a sinner, a bad person, there is no way we're going to do that. So why in the world would Jesus die for all of us who are sinners? Because of his great love. And so maybe you're hearing this and you've never become a follower of Jesus. Um, and you're going, you know what? I think it's my time. Today's the day. I get it. And if you are a follower of Jesus, the way you can respond to that is by taking communion, something Jesus started there at the Last Supper. In fact, what is the purpose of communion? Well, let me show you that. Um, One purpose is it helps us remember. It simply helps us remember that Jesus died for us. Another purpose is it helps us to reflect. To take a few moments and just reflect on what Jesus has done for us. But I think there's another thing involved in this. You know, um, Paul, who wrote many of the books in the New Testament, one of those he wrote was 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says that when we take communion, we're supposed to examine our hearts, make sure our heart is right. Or is there something in my life before I take communion I need to make right? Is there something I need to confess? Someone I need to make something right with? So it allows a time of reflection. And then the third thing, the third purpose, it allows us to respond. And the beauty of communion is when we take that bread or that little wafer and we drink that little cup of grape juice, that is our response to what Jesus has done for us. Um, I like to read books on World War II. I also read quite a few books on the war terrorism. And when I read a book on World War II, and I read what some of those soldiers did, the sacrifices they made, the many lives that were given, you know, whether it was in Europe, in the Pacific, um, it it blows me away. I, I read a book 
about a Navy SEAL and the war and terrorism. It's called Fearless and how he willingly gave up his life so his buddies could live. If you've ever seen the opening scene to Saving Private Ryan and you see that old man just overcome with emotion as he's at the cemetery where his buddies gave their lives so he could live. It's a very moving scene. And so if I've read a book like that recently, and I go to a sporting event, and they play the national anthem, it always causes me to stand a little straighter. I stand at attention, and I put my hand over my heart. And I do that to pay respect for those soldiers who made a sacrifice for me, many of whom made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave their lives. That's communion for the follower of Jesus. Our past, our sins are forgiven. The present, we're part of his family. He wants to walk through this life with us. The future, we have the promise of eternal life. We remember, we reflect, and we respond. The band is going to come out, and we're going to give you the opportunity in just a few minutes to take communion this morning. Um, There in front of you, in those seats in front of you, you'll see a little package that contains a wafer and grape juice. And you peel the top tab off, and that's how you get the wafer out, and then you peel the second tab off, and that's how you get the grape juice open so you can drink it. And we'll do that in just a minute. Um, When you're done with those, you can leave them there. We'll collect them, or you can throw them in the trash as you leave. But we want to give you an opportunity this morning to take communion and just remember, reflect, and respond. And so I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to play, but give you just a few quiet moments to do that, and then they're going to lead us in a song. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Let's pray. God, we are absolutely awestruck when we consider that Jesus came for us and gave up his life. And he did it because he loved us. And Jesus, there's nothing we could say. There are not enough words to say to express our gratitude. And we know there's no way we could repay you for what you've done for us. But this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to take that little piece of bread to remember your body, which was hung on a cross. We're going to drink that grape juice to remember your blood, which ratified a new covenant so that we could have complete and total forgiveness of our sins. And so this is our way this morning of responding to everything you've done for us. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.